Amen. Our passage this morning is John 12. So if you have a Bible, find John 12. Last week I mentioned to you that there's a natural break in the Gospel of John at the end of John 12 and the beginning of John 13. And we're going to take that natural break in the Gospel of John to take a break from John on Sunday mornings. At least we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John. Starting next week, over the summer months, we're going to look at 1 John. Uh, it's a remarkable, convicting, challenging book, and we're going to look at the book of 1 John week by week over the summer. In the fall, when we make our way all the way through 1 John, we're going to talk about the seven deadly sins. We're going to talk about the fact that that's not exactly a biblical list, but all of the sins on that list are sins mentioned in the Bible. We're going to talk about those sins, why they matter, and how we can fight those sins in our lives. Then in October, beginning of October, we'll jump right back into the Gospel of John, and we'll start with chapter 13. John 13 transitions to the last few moments, really, of Jesus' life moments that he spent with the disciples. And so that's where we're headed next week and over the next several months. Since this is our last Sunday for a while in the Gospel of John, I thought I would remind you of the thematic verse of John's Gospel. We've talked about this verse a lot. It's John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Uh, I have the reference wrong. That's the reference for our passage, but the scripture is correct. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The correct reference is John 20, verse 30 and 31. And in that verse, John tells us, this is the reason I wrote this gospel. I'm telling you about these signs that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, performed, and I'm telling you these things so that you might believe. Believe in Jesus. That's something we've talked about every single week in the Gospel of John. It's something we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about it this morning by talking about unbelief and contrasting it with belief. So John wrote that we might believe. In the Gospel of John, the words that we're about to look at are Jesus' last words of public teaching before the crucifixion. So Jesus uh, was crucified on a Friday. The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, before the crucifixion, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He's teaching in and around the temple courts and the temple precincts. He's teaching in and around the city of Jerusalem itself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a lot of that teaching, a lot of the interaction he had with the disciples, a lot of the interaction he had with the religious leaders. John doesn't include all of that teaching. This is the end of Jesus' public teaching in John. And when we pick up in John 13, Jesus' focus, his attention, is going to be shifted from the masses, from the crowds, all of the people in Jerusalem for the Passover, specifically to the disciples. At this point in John's gospel, there are a couple of questions that need to be answered. Here they are. Number one, Jesus is explaining why the crowds don't believe in him, even though they've seen so many signs. And secondly, 
Jesus is explaining why the religious leaders don't believe in him, even though they're the ones who knew the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, had been trained in the Old Testament, were looking for the Messiah. John comes to the end of Jesus' public ministry, and he's sort of explaining through the words of Jesus why is it that the crowds really don't believe and why is it that the religious leaders don't believe. Now, I want to acknowledge the verses that we're about to look at Uh, there's some complexity here. Some of the theology that you'll find in this passage is not low-level theology. It requires you to really, really think. And in a 30-minute window, we can't talk about everything that we could talk about in this passage. So it's possible we come to the end of it and you're still scratching your head on some level. What we are going to do is cover the big ideas, the main ideas, and the single big idea that governs this whole end to John chapter 12 is this. We can have eternal life by believing that Jesus was sent by the Father to save sinners. For all the complexity and all the questions that we may walk away from this passage wrestling with, this is clear. This is true. You and I can have eternal life by believing that Jesus was sent by the Father to save Sinners. So we're going to read the passage, John 12. Last week we left off in the middle of verse 36. We'll pick up right where we left off, John 12, the second half of verse 36. Scripture says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me, And does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity 
to worship with my friends, with my church family this morning. Father, we would much rather be together in this room, but we are very thankful for the opportunity to be together uh, through the internet, through Facebook. Father, we pray this morning that uh, your spirit would be with us, even as we are scattered, we pray that you would be with us. Father, And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to the truth of the Scripture. Father, help us to understand things that may be difficult for us to understand. Help us to understand why they matter, why they're important. And Father, most of all, help us to see Jesus in his glory, just as Isaiah did. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a brief story, a short story, a story about two friends, George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin. George Whitfield was the leading preacher of the Great Awakening. Uh, he was the biggest personality in a, a massive revival movement that spread through the colonies in the mid-1700s. He was a, a personality larger than life. This was a, a man who preached often outdoors without amplification, and it's been reported by uh, Franklin and others that tens of thousands of people could hear him speak at one time. And so Whitfield is the leading preacher of the Great Awakening. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, was really a, an extraordinary man. If you go back and read about his life, uh, he was a thinker, writer, scientist, inventor, politician. He was a uh, what, what historians call a polymath. He was good at a lot of different things, and he was really good at a lot of different things. And these two guys were friends, George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin. Franklin owned a newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, and in that paper, he used to publish the sermons of his friend George Whitfield. And Whitfield was often criticized for his message, for the gospel message he proclaimed. He was often criticized for his methods. It wasn't popular or it wasn't common to preach outdoors. You were supposed to preach in a church building. Whitfield went wherever the people were, and he was criticized by the media for his methods and for his message. And Franklin was always a defender of his friend. He always came to defend his friend, George Whitfield. They were friends for over 30 years. Whitfield often stayed in Franklin's home. They corresponded. And over those decades, George Whitfield, the leading preacher in the largest revival that has ever taken place, place in the United States of America. He shared the gospel with his friend Ben Franklin many times, over and over and over again. And Franklin, to his own admission, never accepted the gospel message. In fact, Ben Franklin said this about his friend, George Whitfield. Franklin said, he used to sometimes pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. How do you make sense of that relationship and that situation? How do you make sense of the fact that George Whitfield led thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ, and he did not, could not lead one of his closest friends, Benjamin Franklin, to faith in Jesus Christ? 
How do we make sense of unbelief when it's not just a story from the 13 colonies, but when it's real in our own lives? How do you make sense of unbelief when you see two siblings raised in the same home, attended the same church, who reach adulthood and take drastically different paths in life? How do you make sense of that sort of unbelief? How do we go back and read the Old Testament and think about the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea, walls of water on their left and their right, having just witnessed the 10 devastating plagues that God sent on the Egyptians? How do we make sense of the fact that many of those Israelites walked out into the wilderness, complained, and actually prayed that God would take them back to Egypt? where they were slaves because at least they had leeks and onions in Egypt. How do we make sense of unbelief in this passage? Where we think about Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, the Word of God made flesh, preaching to men and women and boys and girls, and many of them looking at Jesus, listening to Jesus, close enough to reach out and touch Jesus in the flesh, Walk away unconvinced and unbelieving. John tells us some things here about unbelief that are very important. On the whole, the gospel talks about belief. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? But we come to a point in the story where John is just honestly telling us, here's some folks who did not believe. And if we're going to understand what it means to believe in Jesus, we also have to understand some things about what it means to not believe believe in Jesus. If we're going to understand the good news and the hope and the promise of the gospel, we've got to have some understanding, a biblical understanding of who we are left to ourselves, of the situation that we're in spiritually apart from God's grace. And so the question we're going to begin with is very simple. What does John want us to know about unbelief? And there's several things that we need to see. Here's number one, Unbelief is not overcome by witnessing miracles. Many people believe that's not true. Many people believe signs and wonders will result in people trusting in Jesus. But if you look very clearly, John 12 verse 37 said, Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. We could talk about a number of those signs. Some, you may say, are more impressive than others, but let's just think about the most recent sign that Jesus had performed in the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus. There was a man walking around the suburbs of Jerusalem in Bethany who was carrying his own death certificate in hand. John tells us, if you go back to John 11... That there were men and women standing at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus approached with Mary and when Jesus shouted to the tomb, Lazarus, come out. There were people standing there who watched Lazarus, dead for four days, walk out of the tomb and rather than fall down and worship Jesus, they went and snitched. They tattled. They went straight to Jerusalem, straight to the religious leaders, straight to the people who hated Jesus and wanted to be rid of Jesus, and said to those men, you've got a problem. 
we've got a problem. His name is Jesus. Think about that. They witnessed the miracle. John says they saw many of the signs that he had done, and they did not believe. It's no different than the Israelites. We often read the book of Exodus, and we think, if I could have been there, how strong would my faith be if I could have seen the frogs rain down on Egypt? If I could have seen the darkness cover the land, if I could have walked through the middle of the Red Sea, water on each side, if I had seen those things and experienced those things, then I would have faith. Then I could believe. And John says, no, that's not really how it works. These people saw many signs. They didn't believe. Secondly, unbelief is not overcome by hearing the truth. Now, don't get me wrong, it's important for people to hear the truth, but merely, simply, only hearing the truth is not enough to overcome unbelief. Look at John 12, verse 39. It says, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, and here he quotes Isaiah 6. He says, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. That's God speaking. Blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah 6 is a stunning chapter. Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord. He sees this vision of God exalted in the temple and his throne and the smoke and the rumbling and the glory and all of it. He experiences God's grace. He, he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's doomed. And God comes to him and symbolically forgives his sin. And then God says to Isaiah, I need someone to go. And Isaiah volunteers and God says, great, you're going to go. You're going to preach. You're going to speak. You're going to talk to the people. Just know their eyes don't see and their ears don't hear and their hearts don't work perfectly, properly at all. And no one is going to respond to your message in repentance and faith, Isaiah. No one will respond. The problem for those people that Isaiah went to talk to was not a lack of information. If all they needed was more information, Isaiah could fill in the blanks and give them the information they needed. Their problem was more deep-seated than an intellectual lack of education or understanding or information. They heard Isaiah preach. They didn't respond. These people listened to Jesus teach and preach and answer questions, and they did not respond. On a normal Sunday, people sit in this room, and on a quarantine Sunday, people sit in their living rooms, and they listen to what is said from this platform, and they walk away, and they still do not believe. Information alone, hearing alone, is not enough. It's not enough to overcome unbelief. Third, unbelief is rooted ultimately in misplaced affection. Misplaced affection. Sometimes theologians call this a disordered love. What we're saying here is that it's not just an intellectual problem. Unbelief is actually a heart problem. It's a heart problem. Look at verse 42 and 43. Interesting verses. John says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. 
You say, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about unbelief. And my suggestion to you is that John is using this term with a wink. He's using it uh, with a certain tone to his voice. Oh, they, quote unquote, believed, all right. Here's how they believed. For the fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue because really they loved the glory from man more than the glory that comes from God. John has talked this way before in John chapter 2. Jesus did some signs in Jerusalem, and John says many of the people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in their heart. It was a kind of belief, all right, but it wasn't the real deal. It was the kind of belief that says, hey, I might need to give a a spiritual tip of the cap to this man, but it was not the kind of belief that would result in discipleship or salvation. It's a misplaced affection. Verse 42, they were afraid. Verse 43, more than what God cared about, they were focused on what man cared about. That's a kind of belief, but it's not true belief. It's not saving belief. What these men, what these women really loved was themselves and their own comfort and their own reputation. It was a foolish love. Calvin explains it like this. He says, can any Thing be more foolish, rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God? In their minds, their decision to remain quiet made perfect sense. From an outsider's perspective, Calvin is exactly right. It's foolish and it's beastly, it's animalistic. This is a heart problem. It's a a problem of misplaced affection. Number four, unbelief is a problem we cannot solve on our own. We cannot solve this problem on our own. We'd like to think that we can. We like to look at people at vacation Bible school and youth camp and Sunday morning worship services and say, "All, all you have to do is make a decision. The Bible says you, apart from God's grace, can't make that decision. You can't solve the problem of unbelief on your own power. If you look at John 12, verse 38, there's a quote from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53. If you look at John 12, verse 40, there's a quote from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 6. And in between those two quotes, John says something important. He says, therefore, they could not believe. He doesn't say they refused to believe. He doesn't say they would not believe. What he actually says is they could not believe. They cannot, excuse me, solve this problem on their own. This is not John's way of blaming God for their unbelief. This is John's way of being honest about what sin does to us. Sin is not a small problem. It's not a problem that we can simply be done with when we want to be done with it. It's a problem that we actually love. We have affection for it. 
we have desire for it. And left to ourselves, we can't be rid of it. Unbelief is a problem we cannot solve on our own. It's not just John 12 that says this. Go back and look at Deuteronomy 29. Moses is giving his last speech to the people, and he set blessings and curses before the people. If you go this way, you'll be blessed. If you go this way, you'll be cursed. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy 29, Moses looks at those people, and he says, God has not given you eyes to see yet. He's not given you hearts to believe yet. He's not given you ears to hear yet. You can't do this on your own. Joshua, a generation later, comes to the end of his life and he gathers the people together and he gives them one last speech and he says, you need to choose this day who you're going to serve. And the people say, Yahweh, the Lord will serve the Lord. We will serve him only. And Joshua looks the people in the eye and he says, he's a holy God and you can't do it. You don't have that ability. Many, many years later, the prophet Ezekiel looked at God's people and he said, look, we have been going through this cycle of sin and disobedience and rebellion for centuries. And Ezekiel says, the problem is your heart. It's made of stone. And what you really need is God to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You need God to write his word and his law on your heart. So that then, only when God changes your heart, will you love him and walk in his commandments. Jesus says the exact same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Unless God's grace intervenes in your life, you can't overcome even your own belief. John 6, 65, no one can come to me. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You read those verses, you listen to Moses, you listen to Joshua, you listen to Ezekiel, you listen to Jesus, you listen to John, and you say, well, that's not a very flattering view of who we are and what we're capable of. It's not. In fact, in John 6, when Jesus preached those things, most of the people walked away angry disillusioned and disappointed. This is a problem we cannot solve on our own. Fifth, unbelief is not a surprise or a setback to God. God is not wringing his hands, worrying and wondering about what he's going to do in response to our unbelief. In fact, in Isaiah 6, God told the prophet, yes, you're going to go preach, but no on the front end. This is no surprise. They're not going to listen. In Isaiah 53, he talks about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant who would die for the people. And he opens with this rhetorical question saying, who has believed this? And the rhetorical answer is no one. They'll reject him. He will reveal himself as the Messiah. He will preach year after year after year, three years of public ministry, and at the end of it, they'll reject him. He will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He will be the kind of man that we hide our face from, rejected by the people he came to save. Brings us to number six, unbelief is a sin that was punished at the cross. This is Isaiah 53. The quote 
in John 12, 38 comes from the beginning of Isaiah 52 and 53, this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. More than any Old Testament passage, it's the clearest messianic prophecy that details the crucifixion of Jesus. It's all about the cross. In fact, some people look at the book of Isaiah, and because of many messianic prophecies, especially Isaiah 52 and 53, they say, this is not the prophet Isaiah, this is the gospel of Isaiah. It's so clear in talking about what would happen at the cross. It's a sin that was punished. That's why he, he came. That's why the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. It wasn't to lead a great awakening in first century Palestine. It was to die as the suffering servant for the sin and the unbelief of God's people. It's a sin that was punished at the cross. All of that about unbelief brings us to a second question. What does John want us to know about belief? That's our problem. What is it that we actually need to believe? It's interesting if you go back and look at revivals and awakenings from church history. There have been a number of them. There have been many that were spurious and fake and short-lived, but there have been a number that were genuine and real. And when you compare those revivals and those awakenings, you see three common factors, three things that tie them all together. One is prayer. People were praying that God would do what only he could do. People were praying with humility and dependence on God. God, we cannot convince these people. We cannot argue them into your kingdom. You will have to change their heart. People prayed. Second, they preached. They preached with clarity and conviction. They did not hold back. They did not dilute the gospel. They did not preach some gospel and some pop psychology. They preached the good news about Jesus Christ crucified. And then thirdly, they called people to conversion. That is, they called people to do what Jesus called people to do, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things happened over and over and over again in revivals. You see all of them in the book of Acts. The birth of the early church. What a revival and an awakening. They were praying They were preaching. They were calling people to repent and believe. You saw it in the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers, in their brokenness for recognizing their theological error and their perversion of the gospel, they prayed that God would do something in their churches and in their countries. They preached the gospel with clarity and they called people to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Great Awakening. Men like George Whitfield, they prayed that God would do something in the hearts of the colonists. They preached the gospel every opportunity they had with clarity and conviction. And they called people to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They called people to conversion. One church historian, Thomas Kidd, describes this last piece of conversion like this. He says, the core of Whitfield and other itinerant preachers' message was the new birth of salvation. They got it from passages like John 3. People had to put their faith personally in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. There had to be conversion. 
Yes, God's grace had to go before the preaching of his word and after the preaching of his word, but men and women, boys and girls, had to believe the truth about Jesus and turn from their sins. They had to be converted. John says something similar here about belief. What does it mean? What does John want us to know about true saving belief? Number one, belief must be centered on Jesus. When we tell people to believe, we're not just saying, do you believe, would you believe, please believe that there is a God. We're saying you need to believe in Jesus, the truth about who he is and the truth about what he accomplished on the cross. Jesus says this, it's pretty clear, verse 44 and 45, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus, in this passage, is essentially saying, if you want to come to the Father, it must be through me. He sent me. The Father sent me. And if you want to know him, you have to know me. He says the same thing at the end of our passage, the end of John 12, verse 49. He says, I'm not talking on my own authority. The Father who sent me, has himself given me a commandment. He's told me what to say and what to speak. His commandment is eternal life. And what I say, I say as the Father has told me. If you want to listen to the Father, if you want to know the Father, it must be through Jesus Christ. He sent the Son. Accepting the Son means you accept the Father. Rejecting the Son means you reject the Father. That means you and I have no time for vague, vanilla, generic conversations about God just out there as a higher power, as some sort of unnamed, unknown deity. That's not saving faith. That's not truly believing. True belief, saving belief, is centered on Jesus. It's focused on Jesus. Secondly, belief saves us from judgment. That's the consequence. That's the the right punishment of our sin and our unbelief is the judgment of God. And Jesus talks very clearly about it. Verse 46, he talks about if you believe, you will not remain in darkness. You're already in the darkness left to yourself. If you believe, you can come out of the darkness, but if you don't believe, you remain right there in the, in the darkness. Verse 47, he talks about, now I'm not here to judge, I'm here to save the world. We talked about that word world last week. It's humanity in rebellion and defiance to God and his rule. Verse 48, if you reject Jesus and you don't receive his words, here's the judge. You have a judge. And it's Jesus' word. The word that he has spoken will be your judge on the last day. Jesus is clearly talking about judgment for unbelief. Going back to the Great Awakening one last time. If George Whitfield was the leading personality and the most popular preacher, then Jonathan Edwards was the leading intellectual, the, the leading theologian. Edwards was a pastor and an author, and he invited Whitfield to preach in his church on 
a number of different occasions. A few weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, we actually talked about Jonathan Edwards, and we talked about his most famous sermon, a sermon that he titled, this is the short version, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just the title makes us uncomfortable in 2020. I mean, can you imagine? Welcome to the live stream this morning. We're so glad you're joining us. We hope you'll consider our church. This morning, we're going to talk about you, a sinner in the hand of God who is angry with you. It just doesn't roll off the tongue in 2020. People hear that sort of stuff today, and they say, man, that sounds harsh. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. I mean, that's the kind of thing that people today say, okay, boomer. Whatever you say, that's old school stuff. That's 1700 stuff. That's those, those Puritans and all their negative, bad, hellfire and brimstone teaching. And look, you can say it sounds like whoever you want to say it sounds like. If you read the Bible, it sounds like Jesus. He talks about judgment. And when he talks about sin and unbelief, it's no light, joking, trivial thing. It's a weighty thing. Jesus talks about judgment regularly. He confirms what the Bible says, that there has been a day fixed. And on that day, God will judge the living and the dead. There will be a judgment. Left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, that is a day that will not go well for us. Because sin and unbelief are problems that we cannot solve on our own. But Jesus holds out hope that the Father who sent him will also send his Spirit to draw people to the cross. And here's the promise of our passage. It's the promise of John 6. It's the promise of the Gospel of John. We're going to have eternal life. It's been secured. It can be ours when we believe that the Father sent Jesus to save sinners.